All right, here's a question. Guess where I had lunch for the first time this week? I mean it. Any ideas? Paris? Paris? No, it wasn't nearly that exciting. Nope. McDonald's? No, no, not me. Nope. <laughs> In and out? No. Off Lanny's? I love that place, but no. Chick-fil-A. John, you got it. Chick-fil-A. First time in my life, I had Chick-fil-A. I know some of you are doubting the sincerity of my faith because I've never been to Chick-fil-A. The guy I was with, my friend Carlos, who, by the way, let's just do it right now, Carlos and Robin and their little baby boy, Santiago, for the first time in church. <laughs> Did we wake him up? So glad. Santiago's like a month and a week. Welcome. So anyway, Carlos and I went to lunch. He took me to um, to Chick-fil-A, and it was uh, my first time to eat there, and as I took my first bite of that sandwich, I thought, oh, clearly this was a spiritual chicken. It's so good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. A whole nother level. Yeah, I don't know where I've been, how I didn't miss the, uh, how I missed the boat. Carlos was like, you're a Christian pastor, and you've never been to Chick-fil-A? Like, how does that work? Does that, does that go together? I've read a little bit about Chick-fil-A. I, um, I heard an interview with the CEO of Chick-fil-A. I could tell you just a few things about the restaurant. Like, they're not open on Sundays. They, they're uh, supposed to do really well in the next few years, but until, until Monday, Chick-fil-A had never touched my lips. I'd never, I'd never partaken with the Chick-fil-A. And uh, truthfully, I was excited to eat there because I had been there a month prior. I'd actually been there a month prior, but I didn't eat there. I just picked up food for somebody else. And so I'd gone through this experience, and I, as I drove away, I thought, I feel better about life and myself. I mean, it was just this phenomenal experience. I was like, how did they do that? I just went through the drive through at this restaurant. I feel good about myself. I feel like the sun's shining brighter or something. It was amazing. So I thought about it, because uh, that's what I like to do. I thought, man, I wonder if the church could learn from these people. And others have written about this, I'm sure. But um, why did I leave that place feeling so positive about myself? Well, here's what happened to me. I drive up. This guy meets me in the parking lot. He's smiling. He looks me right in the eye, and he asks me what my name is. That was fantastic, right? He says, welcome to Chick-fil-A. Takes my order, which somebody had given me on a piece of paper, so I was picking up food for somebody else. Then I go around the corner. I'm in the drive-thru. I go around the corner, and there's a young woman there, and she's going to take my money. But she says, welcome, Nathan. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. She looks in my eyes. She says hi to me. That'll be $12. I'm like totally happy to pay it, right? I go a little farther and I go to the window, which is usually really hard to reach. You know that awkward moment when you're like trying to get to the... But there's somebody outside the window as well as inside the window. Great idea. They both greet me by name. I think they're connected. Um, and they, uh, they welcome me and they say, here's your food. And one of them noticed my hat and said, go Dodgers. And I took the food and I drove out. I'm like, I just, this is fantastic. This is great. It's like reminds me of the church when it does a good job, right? When it welcomes people. I, I felt like this was fantastic. So last week I was excited to go back because now I'm going to eat there. So if the, the greeting is that good, the food's got to be even, even better. Everybody was so nice that first time. It reminded me of the church. So the second time I go there was Monday and actually reminded me of the church also, but in a different way and in frankly not such a great way. Because here's what happened on my second visit. I drive up to the friendly guy in the parking lot and he says, uh, welcome um, to Chick-fil-A. What would you like to eat? I had no idea what I wanted to eat. I've never been there. I've never seen a menu. There's no menu posted that far out in the parking lot because we're way out there, right? So I was totally stuck. And thankfully, uh, I was with Carlos, and he kind of like led me through the process and told me what I should get, right? So, and this is what we do in the church. We do this all the time. What is it? We assume people get how it works. 
We assume people feel comfortable here, that like you know where the bathrooms are and you know where to put your kids and, and you know how this all works in this strange gathering where we sing and do all kinds of things that we don't do in other parts of our life. Right? So it kind of reminded me of the church in that sense too. The church can be wonderful and the church can be weird all at the same time. Right? Most of the time it, it touches on both. So it doesn't take much to make people feel welcome. Um, and it also is really easy to forget that even though you may feel comfortable here, maybe there are others who don't feel as comfortable here. And they're new, and they're trying to figure things out, and they're figuring things out on a big scale. I mean, there's folks here that are wrestling with the biggest stuff that life has to throw at us. So maybe actually you're like, well, I actually don't feel that comfortable here, because maybe it's your second time or your third time. Well, but here's what's important to recognize. That there's somebody here that's here for the first time every week, both gatherings every week. Somebody's here for the first time. And so even though you feel new, there's somebody who feels newer. Even though you feel uncomfortable, maybe there's somebody who feels even less comfortable than you. Why is that important? Because you can make a real difference in their life, even just in those early moments of coming in. And I wanted to just sort of gently encourage you to take advantage of those first few minutes before worship formally starts. Friends, this is critical. You decide whether you like the place in the drive-thru, right, before you even eat the food. Um, and that's the same with the church. It's, it's, it's so important that people are greeted and welcomed into this room. When you go to a mega church or a big concert, you don't expect people to introduce themselves to you. But when you come into a room this size with about 100 people and nobody introduces themselves to you, it's awkward. It feels, it feels less than friendly. People often say to us very consistently, because we ask this question over and over, we actually ask how many people greeted you because it's that important to us. Consistently, we're 13 years old almost. People see this as a friendly place. But, you know, when you walk in the room and it's that first few minutes that's so important, and you walk in this room and everybody's heads down because we're all like finishing checking in our kids on our cell phones or making lunch plans on our cell phones, often it's like those, those first few minutes where not going through the normal sort of introductory parts of a corporate gathering, which are so critical. What are they? Saying hi to each other, right? Introducing yourselves if you don't know each other. So this is just so important. And, and this is important here, and it's just sort of the way it is wherever we go. In other words, there's almost always somebody who knows more than you wherever you go. There's almost always somebody that knows less than you. There's almost always somebody that can teach you something, and there's almost always somebody there who you can teach something. Almost always somebody who they can help you out. And there's almost always somebody you can help them out. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're at work, you're playing baseball, you're at school, you're following Jesus. This is, this is the way it is. There's probably somebody who's ahead of you in the journey, and there's probably somebody who's a few steps behind you on the journey. And this isn't about ranking, and this isn't about grading. This is about everyone having an essential role to play in the body of Christ, in the community that you're participating in, right? Which brings me to my point this morning, and this is it. Christianity is essentially relationship. Very familiar concept for a lot of you. Christianity is essentially relationship. At the core, Christianity is a collection of people in relationship with Christ and with one another. There's a whole lot more to Christianity than that, but at the core, at the essence, this is essentially it. Most of us who are Christian were introduced to Christ by somebody else who had a relationship with Christ before we did, whether it was our parents or our neighbor or a friend or somebody in our family, a very small percentage, I know there's exceptions, a very small percentage 
maybe started following Christ because you saw a Billy Graham crusade on TV, or uh, recently I'm hearing about people having dreams about Jesus and waking up suddenly compelled to find out more about who this Jesus is. But the vast majority of Christians throughout the history of the world became Christians through a relationship with another Christian. That's how it happens. Raise your hand if you've been baptized. Good. Keep your hand up if you remember the person who baptized you. Most of you did. Some of you baptized really, really young. You don't remember. Right. Do you know that the person who baptized you was baptized by somebody else? Right? A guy baptized you. Right, Cole? A guy named Hal Bonner baptized me. I don't know who, but somebody baptized Hal. Right? And somebody baptized the guy who baptized Hal. And it just keeps going back and back and back. Is Christianity institutional? Yeah, it is. But at the core, it's relational. Is Christianity historical? Absolutely. But at the core, it's relational. It's relational. How did, how did Christianity spread? Say, if we just look at the first 300 years, like from the death and resurrection of Jesus for the next 300 or so years, how did Christianity spread? How did the Christian community grow in the first 300 years? How did a number change or grow from about a few thousand followers of Christ in about the year 40 AD to many millions of followers of Christ in the year 400 AD. Um, secular sources will put it at about 6 million people in 400 AD. Some estimate as many as 20, 22 million followers of Christ, 400 AD. How'd that happen? Well, essentially through relationship, right? Through relationship. So let me push in here because that can just sound like everything and nothing all at once. So it's helpful if we hear a little bit about the context in which these relationships are happening. Realize, or maybe you've not known this before, but the first 300 years, three, 400 years especially of the faith, the church was under increasingly intense persecution from the government. Okay? Systemic, governmental, organized persecution. Um, like 303, the year 303 A.D., a group of Roman emperors issued a series of decrees that stripped Christians of their rights as citizens, including their rights to own property. It was called the Great Persecution. It was the last and the greatest Roman persecution of Christianity. And the goal of the Great Persecution was to make all the Christians comply with Roman religious practices, which were specifically worshiping the emperor as God, as divine. How well did the great persecution that Rome initiated work? Well, by 325, which is a very short time later, the leaders of the Christian movement who had not gone away, who in fact had overseen a growth in the church, were invited by the Roman emperor to his house. His name's Constantine. He had become a Christian, and he invites them in as the first church council sponsored by the state of Rome to organize and clarify the beliefs of the church. It's called, that's where we get the Nicene Creed. So that's pretty phenomenal, is it not? 22 years ago, put this in your own, put this in our own time. Imagine in 1995, which is 22 years ago, imagine the United States strips Christians in the United States of our rights to own property and to vote, and then systemically or systematically goes about trying to eradicate Christianity in the United States as recently as 1995. And then imagine you hear this summer that the president of the country has become a Christian and is inviting all the Christian leaders to the White House so that he can get the, the backing of the country behind the faith. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing, is it not? It's amazing. 
And then by 380, 77 years after the great persecution, Rome embraces Christianity as the official state religion. It's amazing. So for the first 300 years, Christianity is persecuted. It's illegal. There's no government backing. Christians have no rights. There's no mass media, right? Any kind of mass media event happened in a Colosseum, and the Christians were the bait. The Christians were getting killed. So there's none of the things that we typically look to as reasons for the growth of a movement. And yet, there's more Christians at the end of the second century than at the end of the first century. There's more Christians at the end of the third than at the end of the second. How is this happening? Through real relationships happening in real life. I mean, it's just not rocket science. Real relationships happening in the context of real life. I think it's helpful to look at what those what that context would have been like. And I mostly read church history and theology, so this week I looked at some other secular sources, some sociological sources, for what sociologists say are reasons the church experienced this explosive and sudden growth. One book, uh, there's a lot of books on this topic. One that's being read by a lot right now is by a guy named Rodney Stark. It's called The Rise of Christianity. Check out the subtitle. How the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. I think that's funny. That's so long. Um, so here, Stark, uh, just a sociologist, he identifies four reasons that Christianity grew. Okay, remember, these are just like observable human behaviors. This is what he says. Number one, Christians cared for each other. And because they cared for each other, they lived longer. There was a greater survival rate. And this is a big deal because during this time, there were two major epidemics that went through the region. People are dying all over the place. Christians are living longer. Why? Because they're caring for each other. Second reason, Christians cared for non-Christians. This is surprising. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, you might remember Jeremiah Aha pointed out this quote from an emperor that's like, we need to be like these Christians because look at the way they're taking care of each other. This increases the sphere of influence, right? You're not a Christian, but these Christians are caring for you. That makes an impact. Third, third reason Christianity grows. They stay in the inner cities when everybody else bails out because there's a plague running through the town. So the pagan elite are leaving, the Christians are staying and taking care of them, all the, all the while the basic impotence of, of pagan spirituality is being revealed and the comparative power of Christianity is being put on display. Who are these people? They're like, they're burying our dead, they're caring for our sick, right? They're raising our orphans. Who are these people? Peter points this out even as early as the, the New Testament, First century, he says this, he's writing his letter, uh, First Peter, to the church. Dear friends, this is Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, right? Not I urge you as the moral majority, not I urge you as the dominant faith in the culture, because you're not. I urge you as strangers and aliens in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Interesting, huh? He's seeing the dynamic being played out as early as the first century. Fourth reason Rodney Stark gives for why Christianity grows so much, Christians value women. Yeah, they esteem women 
beyond what was common in Rome. Do you know there's way more men in Rome than women? Way more men. Stark says there's two reasons. Infanticide of female babies and the mortality of women during abortion. Christianity grows. There's more Christians who are women than Christians who are men in this time. He says it's because Christians reject infanticide and abortion and seeing the alternative to the rest of the way the world treats them, women are converting much quicker than men are. There's more women Christians than men the first several centuries. And this is amazing. Uh, Rich just gave me this great book on um, the saints of the church, specifically in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And it's remarkable historically to see on the cover of this book, I couldn't put it down, it's so good, um, several women this is, this is totally unusual historically, right? There are women, they're the mothers of the church, the leaders of the church. Uh, not so weird today, but pretty distinct uh, 2,000 years ago. So in a culture where, in which women are seen as property and the sick are abandoned, Christianity stands out as distinctly different. These people are living differently. And not only does it stand out, but it spreads. How does it spread? One person at a time through real relationships in the context of real life. And what isn't so clear from a sociological perspective, but is really clear from a more spiritually informed historical perspective, is that it's not just relationships through which Christianity is growing. It's a specific kind of relationship, and it's called mentoring. It's called mentoring. It's a relationship where those who um, know more than you, are, are more learned than you, more experienced than you, are sought after for advice, and then having been uh, fed into or guided by somebody, you then turn and you guide somebody else who's less experienced than you. So one person learns from the one who has gone before them and then guides another person who is less mature, younger in the faith. This is a totally silly example, but it's kind of like my, my first experience with Chick-fil-A on Monday. I had no idea what I was doing. Carlos had to order my lunch for me. He's farther along in his Chick-fil-A journey than I am. And so he showed me the way. And I just trusted his guidance, right? And, and if you come with me to Chick-fil-A and you've never been there, I'll be able to guide you. Yes, I will. Because I'm a little bit more like I know the way of Chick-fil-A. At least I can tell you one sandwich that's, that's worth knowing. Totally silly, but you guys are looking a little sleepy. All right. All right, all right. So um, within the culture of the church, do you know what we call this? What do we call this? Mentoring. What's another word for mentoring? Discipleship, right? That's what we call it in the church. Basically, it just means learning. Um, but, it, but it calls to mind a specific kind of learning, and that is a relational kind of learning, a one-on-one a -on -one often or a one-on-three kind of a relational. Jesus is, is uh, disciples 12. This is the primary model of transformation that we see in the Bible, and in historic Christianity. For instance, Paul, who's a major figure in the New Testament, he writes much of the New Testament. He's actually discipled. He's taught the faith and encouraged by a guy named Barnabas. So Paul is discipled by Barnabas. Paul disciples men like Luke, who wrote the gospel, Silas, who becomes a companion, Timothy, kind of his famous spiritual son. Uh, so ways to influence, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how do restoration and for the last several weeks, we've been focused on really practical ways to do restorative work in the world because that's what we believe. That's how the story ends, the restoration of all things. That's what God is about. We've said you can offer a vision of hope. That's a way you can work for restoration. Jeremiah, aha, you can embrace rituals and rhythms of restoration. 
Sounds fancy, but he gave us examples like, like eat with people, right? Like share a meal, rhythms and rituals that are restorative. You can use your words. You can use something that's even more powerful than words, your actions. That's what I talked about last week. Today, a way that is not unique to Christianity, but is certainly core to Christianity, you can mentor somebody, you can disciple somebody, you can receive that kind of uh, training and discipling and mentoring. I'd say the sentence like this, or the sermon in a sentence like this. We can work for the restoration of all things by learning to guide. By learning to guide. It's so basic, isn't it? It's so basic. Why are we talking about this if it's just so clearly plain? It's because, in my opinion, the church in this culture has forgotten how to do this. We don't do this almost at all anymore. We're not good at this anymore. We've become over-reliant on professional clergy. We've become over-reliant on popular TV preachers, on mass media outlets just pumping out Christian truth. It's what much, much of it is wonderful and good and helpful, these big teaching events, but we've become over-reliant on it, so now we're not engaged uh, personally in this critical mode or method of sharing the faith. What makes it worse is, if I asked you to raise your hand, and I won't for this question, but if you raise your hand saying, I was discipled by somebody, I bet there'd be a few of you who would raise your hand. A lot of us, in other words, were not intentionally, structurally, um, in a focused sense, mentored or discipled in our faith, and therefore we feel disqualified to, to help anybody else out. I'll ask people that I just assume are uh, mature enough and responsible enough that they could mentor a new Christian, and they feel disqualified. Why? Because nobody mentored them. They've kind of been picking up the scraps where they can, listening to a podcast, watching some dude on TV, hopefully the preaching in the church helps. But they haven't been mentored, and therefore they don't feel equipped to mentor friends. It's just simply not that complicated. It's just not that complicated. Um, I know it's, it's um, challenging, but it's not complicated. Here's a statement, key verse for the morning, just one, from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first one. Paul defines, or he makes this statement. I think it's a great definition of discipleship. This is what he says. Because we loved you so much... We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Isn't that powerful? Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you, he says to these people, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. This is Christian discipleship. This is what we're talking about. Motivated by love, you share the gospel of God in the relationships you already have and hopefully the new ones that you're continually nurturing. It's mentoring with a spiritual goal. That's what it is. It's training. Anybody ever hired a trainer or an academic um, tutor or a business coach? This is what this is. It's just mind, body, and soul specifically. Discipleship. It's guidance for the journey of God. So I just want to look at this quickly in two areas, inside the home and outside the home, okay? Just to try to get your minds going. I realize it's a super familiar topic. I also am convicted because we need to do a better job, myself included. Inside the home, many of us have been given this amazing opportunity and this staggering responsibility called children, right? And for the Christian parent, we got to understand that central to our responsibility is discipling our kids. It's guiding our children's faith. There are a few humans on the planet who have been entrusted to you. They're called your children. And this is fundamental to your role. As a parent, we could extend this to grandparents, we could extend this to nieces and nephews, those inside your sphere of influence in terms of like your family or your home, 
But there is definitely a specific charge to the parents, a specific responsibility that is given to the parent to pass on the faith to the child in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act, okay? Thought, word, and deed. This is how it's done. We got to equip our kids to navigate the challenges of life and the joys of life with Jesus as Lord, You don't just pick this up by yourself. We got to show our kids how to love God and how to love other people. That's got to be demonstrated. We got to model the faith for the humans who are entrusted to us during their most formative years. Friends, your your children's spiritual formation, it's your responsibility. Just like their academic development is your responsibility, their their physical health is is your responsibility. In terms of humanly speaking, that's your role. That's your job. That's why you're in that position. You you can't outsource your kid's spiritual formation to somebody else, right? You're the primary person responsible for guiding your kid's faith. It's daunting, isn't it? It's intimidating, but you can't outsource this. Our culture has become convinced, this has been shown through recent statistical studies, that most people, most parents believe it's their job to raise their kids in the church, most Christian parents believe it's their job to provide spiritual formation for their kids, and most parents define that as dropping their kid off at church or youth group. <laughs> that's not spiritual formation. That's transportation, right? Let's get those two things clear. They're not the same. They're not the same. And speaking of youth ministries, they've been a thing since the 1960s, um, and, and they're, they're often powerful and helpful. But it's been a long enough time that we've been able to study the effectiveness of traditional youth ministry in terms of how well do kids who go through a high school ministry retain their faith once they graduate. And the statistics are daunting and totally depressing to me as a former youth pastor. It's not working. It's not working. When they graduate the youth ministry, they graduate the faith with alarming frequency. Do you know what the studies have shown does work? Parents who are integrating their faith and their life. Secondly, mentors, other adults, other adults in the community who can come alongside the parents who certainly don't have all the answers and help the kids out, provide another example of what it means to be a Christian man, what it looks like to be a Christian woman. And third, a meaningful role in the family of faith, in the community of the church, like leading worship or being a part of the sound development team or the greeters outside or the kids ministry upstairs. Kids feel like I'm needed here. I'm valued here. I have an important role here, right? There's nothing wrong with youth ministry. It's great to have an age-specific community in which to discover the faith, but my point is to tell you that left alone, it's not doing it. The parents can't just sort of offshore spiritual formation to the youth ministry or the youth pastor. It's not effective. We got to take, as parents, a primary role in in the experience ourselves, all right? So is it complicated? I don't think it's complicated. Does it require intentionality? Absolutely. You got to be intentional about it. I've set alarms on my phone, and I'm not saying I'm the model, the guy who's doing it real well, because I frankly, sometimes it's hard for me. Um, Have you ever heard people say, like, a cabinet maker says, the cabinets in my house are in really bad shape? Or a mechanic says, yeah, but my car isn't really bad because I never have time to do it. You ever heard that sort of that rationale? You know what? It's, it's hard for me to bring spiritual leadership into the home when it's my 
focus of creativity and passion all day long. It's hard for me too. It's hard. It takes intentionality. You've got to set alarms to pray for your kids. You got to set up a routine where you're going to spend some time like talking about what it means to follow Jesus. You got to model it, right? You got to model it. And my goodness, my wife and I, we ask for a lot of help. We ask for a lot of help. And it's been a fantastic experience to have a church community, uh, especially in the teenage years when my kids are like, you know, they love and respect me. I know that they do, but they sometimes prefer to hang out with Josh Unfried or somebody else, right? Like, I'd rather spend time with another adult. Thank you very much, Dad, right? <laughs> so is it complicated? No, it's not complicated. And by the way, grandparents, this is your time to shine. I am, I'm telling you, this is it. This is it. And I can see in a lot of your faces, like, this sense of, like, oh, that's, that, that's gone now. Those kids aren't in my house anymore. There's... You have a massive role to play, a huge potential to shape the lives of kids, uh, your own, your own grandkids, and your own kids still. So is it complicated? No, but it takes intentionality. Can we work for restoration um, by learning to guide inside the home? Yes. Lastly, we can work for restoration by learning to guide outside the home as well, okay? Now we're talking about the rest of life. Let me tell you this story that I heard a couple of, uh, it's been several months now, a friend of mine. A friend of mine is planning to start a new church in Placer County. And so he met with me for coffee. We we're talking about it. And um, he told me this story, and I can't stop thinking about it because I think it reveals a problem, right? My friend's name's Ryan. He tells his brother, I'm going to start a new church, and I want you to help me. And his brother says, no. <laughs> um, and he's like, what? He's surprised. Why wouldn't you? Because you're going to ask me to lead small groups or something in your church. And, and Ryan's like, yeah. That's a good idea. What's the problem? I don't see the problem. And his brother said, I'm connected with this group of coaches. We're together every evening. We know each other's names. We have dinner at each other's homes. We know our kids' situations. We go through each other's struggles. We're encouraging one another along uh, this journey of life, right? And I don't want, if you ask me to lead something in your church, I'm going to have to walk away from these guys, and I'm not willing to walk away from these guys to go do something in your church. I'm not sure. He's probably way more polite than that, but that's kind of the way the story was told. And I can't stop thinking about it because for these two reasons. First, how is it that we have come to think of doing ministry, or when I say discipleship, I think most of us think of something that happens in here, that happens within the church community, which certainly it does, but must it? Must it exclusively happen within the confines of the community of the church? And then secondly, how is it that an invitation to be part of the church sounds to some like an invitation to leave other meaningful relationships outside of the church? Like, when did this wall get built between what you and I are doing together this morning and what we'll do tomorrow morning? When did this get established? And, and how come what is happening here so often feels so unrelated to Tuesday afternoon? And why does Tuesday afternoon feel like it almost has nothing to do with what we're doing here? If that's the way it feels, then I just gotta be honest, and this is a scary kind of honesty for a preacher, but I gotta ask myself this question. What are we doing here? Like, what is this all about if this doesn't just directly relate to tomorrow morning and to Tuesday afternoon? Right. We are the church. We're called to provide spiritual guidance. We're called to be a light in the world, to be ambassadors for Christ, to work for restoration. This happens first and foremost, I would say, in our homes. Been given two little boys, right? The, this is your number one responsibility. Secondly, outside of our home. The relationships that we have with at school, at work, 
people that we share life with. Friends, this is our role in the world. This is our job. This is what we're called to do, to love people so much that we are delighted to share with them not just the gospel of God, but our life as well. This is how we restore all things. We offer a vision of hope, and there's plenty of opportunities to do that these days in case you haven't noticed. Not an empty Hallmark card, warm fuzzy, but a legitimate reason for hope. Engaging in rituals and rhythms of restoration, like meals with people, like caring for people in, in structured, planned ways. With our words, with our actions, and today I'm simply asking you to, to recognize the value of the gift that you've been given in relationships with people. This is the context in which it happens, right? Through relationships. Two quick ways you might apply this today, two ways you might respond to this sermon. There's probably dozens, I hope. Things are going through your head. Uh, one is to identify where it is that you're already relationally connected, right? You guys still do uh, square dancing? Yep, see, there's an example. This whole community, relationships built, trust established, they know each other's names, it's an easy thing to invite them over, right? This is, identify where you're already relationally connected. Friends, this is the place. It's not ding dong, knock on a stranger's door. That's not it. It's the place where you have relationships that you are best equipped to make the most impact alongside Jesus for the restoration of the world. Man, that's why you're there, right? And I'm not telling them you're always like telling them about Jesus because that's not what we've been saying, is it? Right? We've been saying offer a vision of hope, engage in rhythms and rituals, use your words. What's more powerful than that? Your actions. This isn't a weird, funky, bait and switch kind of sales thing, right? This is genuine. But that's where you're the best equipped to make a difference. Where are you already relationally connected? You know their names. You can see their faces. They probably told you something last week that was hard to hear, right? Because that's what real life is. Second way you might respond is to just get some coaching. Uh, get some mentoring. Get some discipleship. Ask somebody. When's the last time you asked somebody to mentor you? When's the last time you asked somebody to disciple you? doesn't matter if you're 40, 60, or 80, right? Get some guidance from somebody. Sit down with somebody. Invite them. Usually, if I ask somebody, can I mentor you, it doesn't work. It's got to go the other way. You've got to say, would you mentor me? That's the way it works. Um, so uh, just to get super specific, Patrick Bradley has been a part of our church for years. Sandy Haskins has been a part of our church for years. She's also on our staff. Would you two stand up just briefly for me? These people, professionally, they work with other people. They guide people through decision-making processes. They engage in strategic uh, dis, um, conversations with people. They care for people. My point is, this is what they do. They mentor and disciple people. Patrick leads church planters and some really innovative projects. Sandy, you know, as you know, she runs our compassion ministries and our home groups. Both of them have agreed to be available to meet with anybody in the church who would like to for a short series of sessions on essentially kind of coaching you through how, who you are, where you are, and how you can make a difference where you are. I think it's a phenomenal offer on their part and I think it's the practical nuts and bolts kind of thing that could actually help us to put some feet to this. Thank you so much. Patrick Bradley, Sandy Haskins, um, available today, right? <laughs> Let me just close with this. The end of Matthew's gospel 
Jesus says to the disciples, as you are going, make disciples, right? It's Matthew 28. Do you know, he didn't say this word, but do you know what the church calls that conversation? The Great Commission. That is the Great Commission. What does that mean? That means that's our job. That's what that means. That means that all the stuff we do and talk about, it culminates in that. Go make disciples as you are going. Like, this is why you're here. You're still breathing? You don't want to know why? This is why, right? You got relationships with people? You want to know why? Ultimately, this is why. This is the great commission. This is what Jesus Christ has called us to do with, with this gift called life. So may he equip us to do it. Not in some awkward, flimsy, overly structured, fill-in-the-blank, naturally, in the gift of real relationships against the context of real life, God have mercy. Uh, may he equip us to make a difference, to work for restoration within these gifts called relationships that all of us have. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray for a minute. Well, they're challenging, Lord. They're sanctifying. Uh, they're the source of grief, but they're also the source of joy, and they're also the source of um, enrichment. They, it's the relationships. That's what makes our life so full. And so we pray for grace to be intentional, not passive, in every single relationship that we have. And I pray that you'd give us courage and you'd give us the energy that we need and you'd give us the kind of support in others and that the church could gather together to encourage one another, then go out tomorrow morning and make a real difference through the relationships that you've given to us. We want to see them as gifts and ask for the grace we need to steward them well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.